Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ about the challenges of primary care, sponsored by Medical Protection. With Ramadan fast approaching, Muslim patients may be approaching their clinicians with questions about managing their conditions during the period of fasting. How should someone with epilepsy time their medications while fasting? Is it okay to fast if you're breastfeeding? And what should you do if a doctor and a patient can't agree on the right approach? Coming up, we'll be discussing these questions and more with Ahmed Mahmoud and Saira Dar, authors of a recently published article on bmj.com about advising patients with existing conditions about fasting during Ramadan. I'm Navjoit Lada, clinical editor and locum GP in London, and joining me in our Zoom studio as ever are Jenny and Tom. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Navjoy. I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor and a GP in New Zealand, and I'm a clinical editor for the BMJ. Hi, and hi, Tom. Hi, Navjoy. Uh, yeah, I'm Tom Nolan. I'm a GP and a clinical editor for the BMJ. Great. Well, thanks both. So, Tom and Jenny, let's talk about Ramadan. What's your experience of talking to patients about Ramadan? Tom? Well, uh, yeah, well, I'm really looking forward to this episode because I guess firstly, I've tended to work in an area where probably very few Muslim patients or people who observe Ramadan and it's definitely an area I'd like to, to learn more about so I can just have more helpful conversations, advise these patients better. It's, um, yeah, uh, it reminds me a bit of other things where you don't feel that confident on because you don't have that sort of lived experience. I suppose before I had kids, I didn't know how, really how to talk about, um, you know, common childhood problems. It's probably a very, another very bad uh, analogy. But, um, you know, the, the, I think for things like this, you, you need to make a bit more effort, don't you, to, to try and understand the experience and, and to skill up uh, on, on areas where you're, you're you don't have as much experience or training. So looking forward to this. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely been been my experience too. Um, and Jenny, how about you? Yeah, um, when I was doing my training in the Bronx, I had a fair number of Muslim patients. Um, but more often than not, they would educate me on, on when Ramadan was, what their fasting would entail, what that meant for their lives, and how they would try to accommodate it. So I do recall several patients with diabetes kind of talking about the challenges with respect to timing insulin. Um, and I also remember um, a pregnant patient who I think had to kind of grapple with what that would mean during her pregnancy for her. Um, but yeah, also really looking forward to um, discussing this and getting some kind of more detailed uh, insights. And I think like both of you are saying, I've definitely um, feel like a lot of, probably a lot of what I've come across before has been quite focused on diabetes and actually, not, and you know, very kind of nuts and bolts, kind of clinical stuff about hypoglycemia and food intake and that kind of thing, but actually much less about what that means to patients um, and just that kind of holistic approach, I guess, has been really missing. And so that's why it was so interesting to talk to Ahmed and Syra about their approach and their article, because I think that um, they do give a, a much more kind of holistic way of approaching this. And that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. 
being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need someone you can turn to at any time. Medical protection is always here for you with expert medico-legal advice, including 24-7 in an emergency. We don't just cover patient claims. We're also here to provide support and legal representation when it comes to GMC inquiries, coroner inquests, criminal investigations and more. Online, we offer risk prevention courses and webinars to keep you up to date with current news, risks and legislation. We also go the extra mile when it comes to your well-being. With a free counselling service and e-care app, we're helping members take positive steps to better mental and physical health. It's the protection your career deserves, all in one place. And if you're about to qualify or have recently qualified, we can help you take the next step in your career with savings on membership for newly qualified GPs. To find out more, visit medicalprotection.org. And now back to our interview with Ahmed and Syrah. My name is Saira Dar. I'm a GP in Glasgow. I have a special interest in lifestyle medicine and women's health issues. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you for joining us. And Ahmad? Uh, hi, I'm Ahmad Mahmoud. Um, I'm a neurology trainee uh, and currently in a post uh, doing a PhD in stroke imaging uh, in Glasgow. So I, I thought maybe we could start by just going over the basics. Um, so what is Ramadan and, and who um, observes it? Uh, maybe I'll ask you, Saira. Um, so Ramadan is a, a month, this is the ninth month of, of the lunar calendar, which means that the timing of Ramadan changes every year. And that's really important to take into consideration. And everyone, all adults, so post-puberty, will uh, be expected to fast during daylight hours. And that means no eating and no drinking during those hours. Um, and usually it means that people will have to hopefully balance meals and plenty of fluids in the, during the sort of dark hours when, when they're not fasting. Um, it varies from country to country on obviously kind of how, what the weather's like, what, how long those fasts are, and these are all things that we need to take into consideration. Ramadan is also not, it's more than um, a religious obligation in the sense that it really is a communal worship. So people, like the community comes together when fasting. So there's, a lot, there's a big emotional and spiritual link with Ramadan, and um, it really is something that people look forward to. Mm. Uh, a, you, you'll be surprised how many people just really look forward to Ramadan and it's such an important part of the, the, the calendar for them. Mm. I think that's such an important point to note and it really comes across in your article because clinicians who aren't of Muslim faith or don't have much insight into what Ramadan might mean for their patients may not, you know, they, they may sort of very casually give a bit of advice of like, oh, well, you know, just take your medication or whatever it is during this particular time, but may not necessarily understand why that, you know, what what, what that might mean for a patient and why Ramadan might be important for them to observe. Um, and then just thinking uh, more about it. So what are the um, clinical implications, I guess, of Ramadan? Uh, that there might be specific groups of patients who you might um 
want to see or want to think about? Um, Ahmad, maybe you can go through those patients. Yeah, so I, I think the, the key thing about Ramadan for, for most of us is that it's a real kind of disruption of routines. Um, so, and with that comes kind of concerns about um, medication, uh, concerns about uh, kind of altered patterns of sleep. Um, so lots of, lots of patients, really most people with kind of chronic disease, they'll need to be some kind of consideration as to whether their medication is going to be compatible with the fast and whether um, any of the lifestyle changes that they're going to make is going to lead on to any um, disruption of their health. Um, and I think um, the uh, so <clears throat> all of those kind of, uh, particularly the chronic disease patients, I think um, are, are, are the ones that will probably most commonly be coming to their GP um, to ask, you know, am I, am I suitable to be fasting? With those chronic diseases, I guess we typically might think of diabetes, but there there are many more. Certainly, um, when when we came to write this paper, the the majority of the literature that's out there is 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 in diabetes, and I think that that clearly makes sense. Diabetes is a common disease; it's very common, um, certainly within the Muslim population in the UK and and, and internationally. Uh, and clearly, the the kind of um, disruption of eating, drinking, medication is going to be so applicable to diabetes. Um, but more and more, particularly in, in in, in the last couple of years, more and more literature is now um, coming out, and, and that's kind of helping um, healthcare professionals to to come to better kind of informed decisions with their patients about fasting and other areas. So you know, other kind of common things, cardiac disease, uh, epilepsy, um, all of these kind of um, chronic kidney disease. Um, lots, you know, once you start getting into it, there's actually quite a lot to think about for for a lot of these different conditions. Surprisingly. People will just fast and not consult their doctors. So I think in primary care, it's a really good opportunity. And that's actually, it's, it's, it's a good opportunity for just having a well-being chat generally mm. to, to ask um, your Muslim patients. And obviously not all Muslims will be fasting, so to ask if they are planning on fasting in Ramadan. And then that gives you an avenue to sort of having that conversation. So I really would encourage people to sort of pick up on those patients because a lot of patients... and. Ramadan is such an important month that people do plan for it. Mm. You know, so as a mom, I'll do my meal plans, and as you know, as a professional, you kind of try and take some holidays in Ramadan, especially near the end. Uh, but unfortunately, people don't plan their their health and their medication, and that's the part that we need to come in. That's where we come in. Yeah, that's such an important point, and and I guess for some um, people, some patients, they, they will obviously experience this annually and um, have built up some experience of managing their conditions. But it just, just occurred to me while you were talking that, say, if you've got uh, someone with a new diagnosis of epilepsy or diabetes or whatever it is, that that might be an important part of your kind of management initially is to just raise awareness that this will be something to think about. Um, I guess just on that note, then, why don't we go into um, approaching a consultation? So I guess... Sorry, sorry, you've mentioned uh, the starting point is that uh, I guess the clinician has to be aware that this is something to ask and to plan for. So how would you how would you approach, I guess, a consultation? Well, yeah, like I say, opportunistically, if a, if a Muslim patient was attending, just to have that in the back of your mind, because ideally that this sort of consultation should start a few months before Ramadan. Um, so if any medication adjustments need to be made, there's enough time to do that. If any blood monitoring needs to be done, you've got time to do that. Um, and it's really important to find out what that patient's 
kind of lifestyle requirements are. You know, what's what's their are they do they have a very physical job? Are they you know, or are they sitting at a desk? Um, so what what's their beliefs? What do they want for you know, how do they want their Ramadan to be? Do they plan to fast every day? It could be that you know they they just want to fast at weekends, and so you need to find out what their belief is, what they want to do, uh, what their lifestyle is, um, and then obviously kind of looking at their chronic disease and the medication is really important. Obviously, there'll be some patients where you will be advising them against fasting, a lot of type one diabetics, for example. So really, just individualizing that consultation, uh, but starting off to, and starting off with what that patient wants, and if something is not. Um, sometimes we think it's all or nothing. Like if you're fasting on Ramadan, that you have to fast every day, 29 or 30 days consecutively. And that's not necessarily the case because you can advise that they maybe fast some days or alternative days. You know, there's always a compromise. So there's a, it's quite a long consultation and maybe splitting it up over a few months is, is the best way to do it. Yeah. And just on that note about planning, and we're having this conversation in, at the very end of January 2022. When is Ramadan uh, this in 2022? April. It's pretty much most of April. So basically now is the time to start having this. Absolutely. Yes. It's really good that we're having this conversation now. And it's um, we're coming out of the summer months into slightly kind of shorter days. Um, so there, you know, there may be patients that weren't fasting last year that you know, may want to consider that so it's I think it's a it's not a static conversation it needs to evolve depending right. on time and place and the individual's current state of health and medication That, I hope, was um, a useful kind of overview of what uh, Ramadan is. And I must say, when I was um, speaking to Syrah and Ahmed, the thing I was really struck by was this point that they made early on, which is that fasting is really important to Muslim patients. And the decision not to fast for, for most patients will be something that they won't want to be taken lightly um, and, it, and it will mean a lot to them. So I think that was a really important um, learning point for me because I know that I have hopefully not been dismissive but at least been like well of course you know you you, you won't want to fast so you know whatever, whatever advice I'm giving you is in that context mm. so that was interesting for I agree me. it definitely an exciting sort of happy time isn't it and um maybe yeah, yeah. I might have had a tendency to just immediately focus on oh but you've got diabetes and then what are you going to do about that whereas Maybe, maybe, yeah, wow, that's great. Um, that's exciting. And, and are you looking forward to it? Might be a, a nicer place to start that conversation. For sure. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. I don't think that I appreciated the kind of joyfulness about this month for for Muslim patients. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that that's definitely been how I've come at it. Fasting is really hard and you'll be wanting to find ways to get out of it. So, um, yeah, so definite, like... Um, had my eyes open to that, which was uh, really, really helpful. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess a point just to make now is I suppose our listeners will have varying levels of experience in understanding the Muslim faith. So you know, we may have Muslim um, listeners who will be probably rolling their eyes at our <laughs> ignorance at Definitely this point. Definitely rolling their eyes. <laughs> but then also... Um, 
you know, varying levels of experience um, in managing Muslim patients who, you know, may have, you know, they may be very mm. well versed as clinicians in looking after um, patients who are fasting during Ramadan. And so, um, yeah, so, but this, I guess, this is a note which maybe I should have said at the beginning that this is for those of us who um, have a bit more of a piecemeal experience and have um, lots to learn still. One thing that, that I was just thinking about during that interview was about um, the difficulties, I think, across across the country, probably across the world, that people are having in accessing GPs at the moment. And you know, patients I've been speaking to this week saying, well, I haven't really had a review for two years. And, and I don't think that's the practice that was particularly unique in that. You know, people just haven't had the same level of um, review of their chronic diseases as they had them previously. Uh, and I guess I was thinking about how how we can you know deal with that generally but specifically in, in this situation uh and then looking at the article you know i guess there's an opportunity for pointing people in the direction of of self-care or I, I guess people probably do a lot of this in their communities um with people they know or or have worked it out for themselves so i'm just interested in that kind of gap and how gps are going to help in, in this yeah, that is such a good point that, um, yeah, this may be an opportunity, if you like, to engage um, with patients. It might be an opportune moment to do that. But yeah, I think that point that a lot of patients will be quite well well versed, I suppose, in um, knowing what to do when this time comes. Um, but I guess particularly if there's, you know, if people haven't had reviews for a couple of years, perhaps the difficulty is knowing you know, where their baseline is at the moment and, and how to adjust um, on the basis of that. So, yeah, that's that's a challenge, I think. I totally agree. And I noticed in this article as well, there is a box specifically around this idea of trial mm. fasts, which give, give patients an opportunity to fast outside or in advance of Ramadan if they for example have a new diagnosis since the since the preceding Ramadan or if any of their circumstances or conditions have changed and I, I it's such a great idea it makes so much sense um really practical and also I I had the same thought as you Tom like okay but that that's an additional conversation and when people are already struggling to get time with their GP, maybe this is not what they want to talk about. Like they have another reason for coming into the practice. And then, and then for us to say, oh, but let's talk about doing a trial fast. I mean, clearly all of this has to be, um, you know, in discussion with the patient, but it, but just to completely agree that, you know, these kind of conversations and advanced thinking really take time. And ideally that would be face to face. I guess there are other resources in the community, which you alluded to, Tom, that people will have, um, you know, their friends and relatives um, whose experience, you know, we, we all do that for, for you know, everything. <laughs> um, but then also, um, you know, that there are other, I suppose, um, sort of respected positions like pharmacists that, that, you know, patients may go to for advice as well. And also, I suppose, within their faith, one of the rapid responses we got to the article, uh, which came in over the weekend, was about involving imams in, in some of these conversations as, you know, people in a really respected position. And obviously not for kind of giving clinical advice, but certainly for at least broaching the subject of speaking to your GP or, or you know, at least kind of giving some steer. 
and there's a, there's a few links on the article. I should plug that. That uh, again, if, if that people could look at um, at all centre patients, I think there's some useful uh, reading material there too. Okay. Well, the second half of my conversation with uh, Syra and Ahmed goes into much more detail about kind of management considerations and what to do in specific scenarios. And we talk about some of the things that you can try in this kind of pre-consultation or pre-run-up period to Ramadan, like the trial fast. So shall we have a listen to that? So the, the, the approach we've, we've borrowed from, as I was saying earlier, that the, the literature on diabetes is probably the most developed and um, they use a kind of red, amber, green approach um, and um, kind of stratify within diabetes. In, in that case, um, patients with you know features of diabetes that they would consider um, unsafe to, to kind of fast at all. Um, and, and there the kind of advice is largely around um, you know how to how to maybe explain to the patient why why, why there's a, a specific risk to them of fasting, what the alternatives are that they could use. Um, um, so, for example, one of the alternatives that we talk about in the paper is um, some patients, because of particularly in in parts of the world like the UK where the fasts from summer to winter differ so widely. Um, so you're talking about kind of ten hours of fasting in winter versus you know up to twenty hours in in um, in the summer. Um, so there may be some patients that can manage it in the winter, but can't manage it in the summer. Uh, and then you're talking to them about, well, okay, when, when Ramadan is in the summer, um, maybe that's best for you to avoid that. But come the winter months, those fasts that you didn't get to do, you can you can do those at an alternative um, time in the winter. I think that you know people might uh, patients might still find that difficult because you're missing out on a lot of the kind of communal aspects that that Syrah was talking about. But um, you know that's that's one alternative that, that's there. Uh, then you've got the kind of kind of medium risk um, in, in the the amber group where ideally you know they probably shouldn't be fasting, but but you know it's it's not quite as a, a high risk uh, as, as the um, as of the, the red patients and then your green patients are those who maybe just require a bit of lifestyle advice uh, a, a review of medication but but as long as they kind of keep things sensible should be should be able to, to follow that so what we've kind of tried to do and 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 looked at the literature that's out there is um, we've it's very difficult to be comprehensive in a list of all, all chronic illness to, to put them all into red amber green but we've tried to kind of um, highlight where where there is an evidence base to to, to do that and and uh, what kind of things might put something into an amber and what might might be a green um, and highlighted issues like multimorbidity, um, which which you know a, a number of conditions which on their own might be okay once you, you you put them all together in one patient actually in in the individual circumstances of that patient they might be higher risk than than, than it first seemed so those are the kind of um and, and i think that the, the helpfulness of of using that kind of red and or green system is it's it's easy to understand for the people uh, for healthcare professionals using it and it's easy to understand for 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 patients when you're when you're explaining that to them so we hope that that's kind of a, a helpful approach mm. I, I would also add to that as gp 
GPs, we, we often get advice from specialists here in, in secondary care. So um, I would be seeking advice in terms of medication. For example, someone like Ahmad, um, you know, for any kind of um, epilepsy type medication, changing to modified release, because those are things that I wouldn't want to do by myself so just a quick chat with a neurologist about that or endocrinologist you know we've got good access through email so yeah just using uh, our colleagues in secondary care as well for advice yeah for sure <laughs> I, I i'm similarly not sure i would go about changing someone's epilepsy regime so that's yeah definitely and do you find that in um that you know i guess your uh, consultant colleagues or our consultant colleagues are people kind of quite well versed in making these decisions and and doing these adaptations? I guess it must vary. Yeah, I I, I think the it will vary. So if, we, if we're looking at the UK, there's there's going to be areas where there's um, large Muslim populations, and this kind of issue will have surfaced um, very often, and, and and people might be quite um, comfortable and and kind of know a lot of the the, the jargon and and, and um, you know what we were speaking about at the beginning of um, the importance to patients of fasting. I think um, when I've discussed this with colleagues. Um, particularly when it when it comes to talking about summer fasting, people m- might assume that you know people would be looking for any way out of not eating yeah. 20, 20 hours a day. And and Sarah and myself will, will, will tell you that the the you know the conversations that you have with patients and in even with within your own family and, and, and things, you're doing everything you can to try and, and convince people that they're that, that they're, they're at risk because the importance of fasting to them is and is so important that that um, to to kind of deny them that is is really something significant you know the, the analogy that i would give is is hospital as it comes up to christmas day you're doing everything that you can to try and discharge that patient safely right. in time for christmas uh, and, and and in a very similar sense um, you know the pa- patients will want to see that the healthcare professional is doing everything they can to try and get them fasting in Ramadan and and that will help them realize that you know if, if we've really tried if we have tried some medication changes um, we talk about trial fasting and the the paper if we've tried a few trial fasts and they've not gone well um, that you know makes them feel reassured that if, if they take a decision not to fast that that's been thoroughly kind of thought through and, uh, and everything. Yeah, that's really important. And I think it also in the article, you do emphasize the importance of that being a shared decision as well. That yeah. seems especially important. Yeah, I think so. I think um, um, you know the, the the kind of dynamic that's there. I think um, you know, as I was saying, a lot of people might not actually um, consult with their GP or their specialist um, before um, before start, um, you know making their decision to, to fast or not. So um, you know, trying to bring that in is is, is going to be quite crucial. Great. And just one um, before we move on to some examples and case studies, one um, group of people, patients that we haven't discussed are um, people who are pregnant or breastfeeding. So I wonder if you could just give us a quick, um, I guess, summary of what an approach, you know, what your approach might be, um, Syra? Um, yeah, that, that's been a really interesting one, actually. And it's uh, been probably what um, I can add in um, being part an area in the, in the article that has probably been the most discussed and maybe a little bit controversial. Okay. Um, there, there is a sense or a misunderstanding that if you're pregnant or breastfeeding, by default, you don't have to fast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Islamic guidance actually is that you, if there is a risk to the mother's health or the baby's health, then you don't fast. 
And though that, again, needs to be individualised, you know, understanding. So in, in pregnancy, what's the mother's sort of foundational background health? You know, what are the health conditions? Are she taking any medication? A previous pregnancy, uh, what have they been like? Um, any issues with pregnancies in the past? Um, that all needs to be taken into consideration. At what stage is the pregnancy is vitally important. Um, also, you know, where you are, how long are the fast? Because the issue is more to do with dehydration than the macronutrients. Um, and that's relevant in, in breastfeeding as well. Is breastfeeding established? Is, breast, is, is the mother solely breastfeeding or is it mixed feeding? Um, so again, that conversation needs to be ha ha had and the care has to be individualised and it's not a blanket default that a woman won't fast. And actually, in our research, we picked up that you know, large proportion of pregnant women and women that are breastfeeding will be fasting. So again, it's to have that conversation opportunistically and make sure it's done safely to be able to advise the ones that shouldn't that they shouldn't be fasting. Mm -hmm. And what are um, some of the adaptations, I guess, that you can offer? You mentioned earlier that, you know, not fasting every day might be an option. Are there other, mm -hmm. are there other yeah. examples of, of things like that or modifications? Also, I mean, if, if the days are, if it's not conducive with long fast and fasting in the winter months, again, it doesn't, you know, they miss out, they feel they miss out in the communal experience of it. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, doing a trial fast, you know, that might be, you know, if a woman's pregnant, um, you might have to trial the fast and see how she goes. Uh, and, you know, that one fast is going to be fine. It's not going to be an issue. And in breastfeeding, the, the issue isn't, the macronutrients like I say because you've got two meals and again it's an opportunity to bring in that lifestyle advice make sure that the meals are balanced and um, it's the dehydration that can be the issue and um, so again alternative fasting is, is a really good option two days on two, two days off you know so there's, there's there's definitely a compromise that can be reached depending on the individual and their their health needs yeah so that that has to be as you say individualized and I guess um as the clinician you'd want to be quite involved in in sort of yeah, checking yeah. and monitoring how that and, and the midwives obviously have a big part yeah. to play in this because as you know we don't see we don't deal with pregnancy day to day the midwives would be sort of a uh, dealing with that um but again shared care bringing other people into that conversation is really important that's very helpful and then um what about, uh, say, a patient who develops um, an acute illness, um, either just before or during um, Ramadan? Um, Sarah, how would you approach that? Um, yeah, that, that's a very common one. Um, mild kind of respiratory type colds, coughs might not need any, you know, a lot of times people don't consult for that and they would continue on fasting because the basic rule is that if it's not, if you can carry on with the normal physical activity that you're doing, um, then and and the symptoms are not going to get worse while you're fasting, then you're okay to continue fasting. If you are feeling worse, as it, for so for example, someone that's that's already fasting, but as the day goes on, they're, they're getting worse. Their symptoms are getting worse. Maybe the headache's increasing. Um, they can break the fast. So that's another important thing to kind of bring in. Some people will choose to start a fast and then there's that allowance to break the fast if you feel that your symptoms are getting worse with the fasting. 
So every, you know, it depends on, on the, the, the kind of severity of that acute illness. In diarrhea and vomiting, for example, risk of dehydration, long days, summer fast, that would be too much of a risk for increasing dehydration. We'd be advising them to not fast until their acute illness had resolved. Um, so again, I think using that clinical judgment to, to decide, you know, what are the risk of dehydration, what are the risks of the, the condition worsening if the fasting was to continue? Those are the kind of things that you want to um, have a think about. For the people who, um, for whatever reason, are unable to fast, what are some of the um, strategies that can, I guess, help with that, you know, related to the Muslim faith? So, yeah, so, so I mean, Ramadan is, is, is more than, than just fasting. Um, probably the kind of most clear kind of um, communal um, thing that goes on is, is is nightly prayers in the mosque, um, which which a lot of people do, um, and that you know I, th- I think the the social elements hopefully don't have to be lost. We've all lost the social elements uh, the last mm-hmm. couple of Ramadan, so fingers crossed we've got that back this year. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, so, so you know, attending the mosque, uh, attending get-togethers um, uh, when when people are getting together to, to break the fast. Um, um, uh, charity is a big part of Ramadan as well. So so you know, in, in terms of um, giving in charity and and, and um, volunteering for charities, that kind of thing. Um, all of those aspects hopefully would mean. Um, I think that as long as people are, are feel that they can still participate in the social and the communal aspects of Ramadan, I think that's that's important. Um, and then in terms of the, the kind of spiritual things, then as I was saying, the kind of nightly prayers in the mosque, um, reading of Quran, these are these are all kind of things that all of us do um, a lot more in Ramadan. And, and, and you know, there's no reason why a, pe- a person that can't fast because of their health wouldn't be able to partake in those things as well. Hey. One of the things that we may be asked as a... Um, healthcare professional is the question, will I ever be able to fast again? So there is dispensation for that kind of group, either due to chronic disease or just age and being elderly. Um, and then, you know, like I say, again, in the article, we've kind of talked a little bit about um, that disposition that disposition that happens for that group of people. So that may be a question that comes to you. Will I ever be able to fast again? Um, and yeah, being aware of that as well. So hopefully there were some useful tips and bits of advice there. Um, was there anything that stood out to you, Jenny? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing that most stood out for me, um, having taken care of quite a lot of um, prenatal patients, is the piece about dehydration. And also having like fasted myself as a kind of um, charity event uh, around Ramadan. Um, that was definitely the hardest part. Uh, not being able to drink any water during the day. And, and I can imagine, you know, for a pregnant person, that would be magnified even more. And, and then I was thinking, you know, what if that person had hyperemesis gravidarum and like the a core tenet of the management is adequate hydration. Anyway, um, that really uh, stuck out to me as something to really think about. And um, the notion of, kind of alternating days on and off fasting, I thought was a really useful tip. Mm. 
Yeah, I agree. And I, I think just a, a core kind of thing that I've come away with actually is the kind of the it's not black and white. It's not you either fast or you don't. There's a range of options in between that um, might make fasting safer for patients if, you know, for whatever reason they're, they're unable to fast. Yeah. And Tom, how about for you? Yeah, I guess on that point, um, it's not, it's a nice shared decision-making example where mm. there actually are quite a lot of this, <laughs> things, different options. And sometimes sometimes there aren't that many options when you're, when you're trying to have a shared decision-making discussion. It's like, take the drug, don't take the drug. Um, so it's a nice one where there, there seems to be a, lo- a lot of... Uh, a lot of different options that, that you can discuss or that they can go and sort of think about. Um, I suppose the other thing that occurred to me, um, it, it seems a, an interesting example, again, of, you know, when people's chronic disease or ill health kind of start to clash with their identity and their, the, you know, the, the things that they hold to be important. And obviously this is a very important thing. And... You know, and and we see it in lots of different um, examples, don't we? In, in lots of different parts of people's lives, and that bit at the end about you know, will I ever be able to fast again? Just seems to sum up the one of the saddest and hardest things I think for patients or people, human beings, <laughs> uh, is to to come to terms with the impact of their health, health and or ill health. So, just got me thinking about that. Mm. Mm. Tom, bringing the deep thoughts as usual. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point. Um, Yeah, oof. And I don't know, that's a difficult one to talk about, I guess, if your kind of impression is that it's probably not. Like if someone's got a a sort of, you know, chronic condition that is unlikely to change. Yeah, I guess it'd be easy to flippantly go, oh, sorry, no, you won't be able to to do that. But that's like a big deal. I guess maybe maybe all, all you can really do is just be more be conscious of of the impact of the words you say in this sort of situation yeah it's it's a big deal yeah yeah for sure and as we've said you know so or we've we've tried to say so many times um during this conversation you know there will often be so much kind of knowledge and experience and history from the community itself in terms of kind of adjusting to that new reality, accommodating that new reality, trying to negotiate how a new condition or chronic disease diagnosis may or may not affect um, fasting. And I also really liked um, the the fact that this is as, you know, that the, the fasting is kind of a, a, a really important piece of this, but it, but um, it's also the kind of sense of community that comes along with it. And um, you know, hopefully there will be some element of that kind of community participation, even if um, fasting is shorter or on different days or um, perhaps not not done at all. Hmm. And I guess another point to make is that many of us, I think, might work in practices or have Muslim colleagues as well, who um, I, I was really interested and asked Syra this question, um, but it, it, we uh, didn't have time to include it in the interview, but about how, you know, d- in a similar way to how women uh, GPs might find that they get a lot of the gynae consultations uh, in their in their surgeries, I was wondering if um, you know Syra felt that a lot of her colleagues didn't feel equipped to 
to handle a lot of these queries about, you know, what to do during Ramadan. And um, but she was saying that she works in a practice that is um, where all the GPs are Muslim and where they the vast majority of their patients um, are, are, you know, covers a, a large Muslim population in Glasgow. And so um, but I was thinking, you know, in practices that I uh, have worked in in London. We have, you know, a real mix of um, GP backgrounds. And I would be really interested to know, you know, from colleagues about how they feel about being asked about these things. Tom, to use your analogy from earlier, you know, I can't imagine that I would ask um, GP colleague with children about, you know, have I given the right management advice for, you know, whatever, whatever query might have come up. But, you know, there are things that I have anxieties about having not experienced myself, like, you know, I've never breastfed before and that sort of thing. And I just, I just think it's a really interesting area about like, how much can we lean on our colleagues for their kind of advice and experience, particularly when, um, Particularly for something like this, I think, like the issues of cultural competence is like to what extent should the onus be on us to figure these things out? And how much is it okay to just, you know, ask colleagues about these things? And hope, you know, is that placing a burden that we shouldn't be placing? Just, I'm Mm. really fascinated by all this stuff. Yeah. I guess there's there's a difference between dumping maybe and like, uh, you know, interested uh, inquiry and, oh, do you mind if I have a chat with you about this? Because I'd like to, like, there's a patient I saw and I didn't feel I, uh, I, I, I had all, the, 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 uh, my fingertips, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's very but, different from just like, go and see Dr. X because, <laughs> yeah, just booking, yeah, for sure. But but I'd, I'd love to hear from, from more people on that too. Um, but would you not ask somebody with, you know, about... Um, like a five-year-old, you know, snotty nose kind of, you know, or the kind of random, you know, questions for newborns that, that we get asked. Would you feel uncomfortable asking a, a colleague? I, I think for the, the common that? GP things, I, I feel like fine managing mm. those. And, you know, there's so many conditions that we don't have lived probably most of them we don't have lived experience of Mm. I think a lot of it is my own confidence and my sort of sense of legitimacy in giving Mm. advice Mm. um so a lot of that might be my own issue and I guess when I'm asking colleagues you know it's interesting for me to reflect on that sometimes when I'm asking colleagues about like oh you know I said this is that it's it's more for my own reassurance Mm. rather Mm. than a curiosity about learning maybe (laughs) yeah 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 I know what you mean (laughs) But I think what you said, Tom, is right. There's a difference between kind of uh, tokenizing and assuming what someone's experience is versus kind of approaching a colleague and say, like, hey, I know you have, you know, some lived experience with this. Um, This is an area that I personally have that much knowledge of and you know there's there's, it matters I think how you how you approach the colleague Mm. well there's um I just want to give another I know we keep referring to the article um which is available on bmj.com and it covers you know what we talked about in our conversation was just a kind of smidge um of what the article goes through there are more case studies there's a really whizzy infographic there's some um stuff about the different approaches between Sunni and Shia kind of branches of Islam as well. So do check out the article and we'll link to it in the show notes.
I guess that's it for this week. So uh, thanks very much, Tom. Thanks, Navjoy. See you next time. Thanks very much, Jenny. Thank you, Navjoy. See you next time. And thanks so much to our guests this week, Ahmed Mahmood and Syra Dar. And do like us and rate us wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, drop us a line at practice at bmj.com if you want to get in touch with any questions or ideas or comments. But that's it. Bye for now. 